Hello and welcome to Just Emergencies. I'm Rebecca Richards and for today's episode I'm joined by Professor Samia Hurst to discuss her conception of vulnerability. Professor Hurst is the Director of the Institute for Ethics, History and Humanities at the University of Geneva Medical School. She's a consultant ethicist to the Clinical Ethics Council of the Geneva University Hospitals and she also chairs the Ethical, Legal and Social Issue Expert Group of the Swiss COVID-19 Science Task Force. Professor Hurst has been writing on vulnerability for more than a decade now, so we're delighted that she gave us an in-depth look into how she conceptualizes vulnerability and the advantages that her approach has, especially during global health emergencies such as the COVID-19 outbreak. This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, Samia. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Just Emergencies and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So in your work, um, you engage a lot with this concept of vulnerability. And that's a word that's come up a lot during this COVID-19 pandemic in particular. What's your approach to this concept? So I first started working on the concept of vulnerability uh, in response to a request to teach biology students. Vulnerability is an intuitively appealing concept and we all have images and examples in our minds as to who we consider to be vulnerable. And this is very much the way the word is used, um, not only in the general public, but also in the science literature. And so we forget that really we have to explain that we do not all have the same concepts of who is vulnerable. And in having to teach biology students, I remember thinking not long before the lectures were due, actually, oh my goodness, uh, they're not going to have the same intuitions. They have no clinical experience. They are very young. And so I started embarking on work to make a definition that would be understandable to them. Back then, there were so many different ways the word was used. Um, the definition I came up with back then, which has, I think, stood some of the tests of time since then, is that um, we are vulnerable if we are at greater risk of being wronged. This is a definition that attempts to be descriptive. Uh, we do not have any particular duties, any particular moral duties towards the vulnerable under that definition. What we have are general duties towards everyone, and vulnerability is the name we give to the difference in how hard it's going to be. We have the right for protection of our bodily integrity, for example, and a population might be vulnerable if they're more likely to be wronged under that heading. And this means that attaining for them the same degree of protection of bodily integrity is going to be harder, meaning we will need to make more efforts or different efforts in order to reach for them the same level as for everyone else. So basically, this is not a view that treats people as having different rights in view of their vulnerability. It is a view that takes everyone as having the same rights, 
but recognizing that sometimes it is predictably more difficult to fulfill those rights for some. This has some very interesting side effects, as it were. First, uh, it recognizes the fact that there are many different ways of being vulnerable. Because there are so many different morally protected interests or rights or claims, uh, as it were, that we all have, if we can be vulnerable under each one of them, this explains why there are so many different vulnerable populations. It also explains why we have these long debates about whether everyone is vulnerable or just some. And my answer to this would be, sure, we are all vulnerable at some points in our lives to some things, but it does not mean that we all have the same vulnerability all the time. And so it's interesting and important to distinguish, even though in the end it is a concept that nobody really can escape from. Yes, absolutely. And also something I found really interesting is this idea that being vulnerable means that you're at greater risk of harm or wrongdoing. And you mentioned that that entails or, or there's the the obligation to then help people sort of go back up to the status quo. How is that status quo measured? Is it within societies? Is it globally? Is it within communities that share similar characteristics? Or what's the baseline for comparison there? That's an excellent question. Whatever baseline you adhere to, you also have to recognize that if some people will have a harder time reaching that baseline, you will have to define these people as vulnerable and take special measures in order to get them to that baseline. But you're completely right. These baselines are the objects of debate, of disagreements, um, of uh, differences in culture. And sometimes what we call differences in culture are simply differences in material circumstances. And so we did not say anything to that. There are many different views on the, the morally protected claims of humans. There are many different views of what a decent minimum would be and on whether a decent minimum is what should be attained or something else. Um, but uh, at, at very minimum, conceptually speaking here, if you recognize a claim, whatever claim you recognize, there will be, a, a, there will be forms of vulnerability attached to it. Uh, there will be people who have a harder time reaching the fulfillment of that claim, and this will happen for different reasons. And the way in which to bring them back to the baseline will vary according to the reasons. So you really need to have a very differentiated view here. But what we're saying is you cannot simultaneously recognize a claim and disregard the vulnerabilities that are attached to it. What do you think the particular advantages are of deploying the term vulnerability in the way that you do? So I think one of the first advantages is to recognize that there is great diversity within the concept. And I think this is useful. First, because it makes it less likely that we will forget vulnerable populations. Uh, there, there is one of the, of the approaches that simply lists groups. Um, and there are constant hagglings as to who ought to be on the list, who ought not to be on the list. And it's true, there is a high risk of forgetting vulnerable populations. Um, and we forget these. So we have blind spots and having a view where you will list more systematically what morally protected interests or claims or rights persons have, and then think about how you could have these claims or rights become fragile, will make it less likely that you forget vulnerable populations. It will also, that's a second ad advantage, it will help you tailor protections. Because if we base ourselves on the intuitive appeal of vulnerability, 
uh, we, ha we are at high risk of mismanaging protections, of having counterproductive protections. And one of, the, one of the striking characteristics of vulnerability, when you start to look at it closely, is that many people will accumulate vulnerabilities. There are vulnerabilities that will lead to further vulnerabilities as well. And so people tend to have them in clusters or groups. And this means that the likelihood that what you try to do to protect someone will backfire is actually rather high because uh, people tend to have fragilities uh, in every corner of their lives in some circumstances. And you really must tailor the protections intelligently in order to actually make them better off. And knowing what the sources of the fragility of their claims are, knowing uh, what it is that they are more at risk of um, and why will help us to make protections that actually work. That's the second advantage. And the third one, it's uh, setting aside the labeling problem. It's the realization that vulnerability is something that happens to us, not something that we do through our faults. And this is particularly important in healthcare because the moralization of health uh, is a very strong trend in our in our societies. I've actually written papers on that as well in the interval. Uh, we have a tendency to blame victims. Now, the idea that vulnerability is an inability for starts, that it is something I'm not able to do, very quickly feeds into this overarching story, as it were, and gives the impression that if you're vulnerable, it's really your fault. And we really must get rid of this idea. People who uh, are in a situation where their claims are fragile need help and not blame. So in the current COVID-19 pandemic, or even in global health emergencies more general, how do you think vulnerability and your particular conception of it plays out or is operationalized? So I think that in a situation such as the one we are living through today, um, the, the approach that I proposed for vulnerability is demanding, but it's the right kind of demanding in my view. It demands of us that we sit down and have a long, careful look at uh, who is most at risk of what, in the current circumstances. It requires a good long look at reality, uh, not just at how we have the intuition that things will play out, but how they are in fact playing out. And here there are at least two different changes of circumstances that could generate new vulnerabilities. Um, the first is the pandemic itself. Um, we have, we are not equal in the face of it. We do not have equal risk of becoming sick most notably, very young children are less at risk of becoming seriously ill, which is a great fortune, but it's, it also means that higher age groups are more at risk. We do not have the same risk of dying. Uh, we may find out in the future that we do not have the same risk of long-term consequences, although the data is not in yet on that chapter. And so the pandemic itself does not strike all of us in the same way. And so if we think of the claim to health, the claim to bodily integrity, um, the protections that come with that, some will be harder to protect than others from serious disease and death. And this is the most obvious factor. The second one is our pandemic response, what we humans do in response to the pandemic. And I'm thinking here of official responses, of government responses, of lockdowns, confinements, quarantine, isolation, testing, all of that. But I'm also thinking of responses by individuals. 
So, for example, when looking at economic consequences of the, the pandemic, one of the most broadly misunderstood things, but which some colleagues of ours in Switzerland uh, explored, is that most of the economic downturn following the pandemic is actually due neither to the pandemic itself nor to official responses, but to spontaneous responses by individuals. It turns out people are afraid of contagion. So even if you don't close down the shops, people are not going to go. Even if you don't close down the restaurants, people will avoid them because they know there's a contagious disease around and they don't want to catch it. And so even countries with no lockdowns are also suffering economic downturns simply because people are scared and they change their behavior in consequence. And of course, the pandemic itself also attacks economies, not just anti-pandemic responses. And so we have these two components of response, the official collective one and the aggregate individual one. And if you think about who could be most vulnerable to each of those, this will very much vary with geography. Different governments are not taking the same measures. And these measures are not deploying themselves on identical societies. And so depending on how your society functions in normal times, uh, even the same measures will have different impacts on components of the population. So you really need, that's what I mean when I say you need a hard long look at reality. You need to think about who will be most affected by this or that official measure or this or that non-official reaction of people uh, on different population groups in your society. And some of the things are very predictable, others are not. And of course, we cannot be held to such a high standard that we must predict the unpredictable, but there's a lot that is predictable. So for example, um, in the country where I live in Switzerland, there has been um, a very broad government response to sustain individuals through the economic hardships of shutting down different economic activities. This has been actually one of the aspects of which I'm, for which I'm rather proud of my country. Um, there was help directly to people so that they would keep income while they were not working and so that uh, businesses would not have to pay workers so they wouldn't need to lay them off. That's really great. But we do have blind spots. People who are illegal workers aren't generally with a contract and an employer that's official and so these helps have a hard time reaching them. And so predictably, it's going to be harder for people who are illegal workers to go into confinement, to avoid becoming uh, people who will transmit the disease and who, um, who will then be able to go into isolation and quarantine as we deconfine and use these more targeted measures in order to limit contagion in the public sphere. We, we can predict some of these vulnerabilities and one of the things that becomes very quickly apparent when you start parsing out the population like that and looking at who has a more fragile claim to what, uh, you quickly realize the interconnections as well, especially during an epidemic or a pandemic where you, after all, fear contagion, you realize that anyone who is more at risk for claims that are important in order to be able to confine, to survive financially, uh, to be able to protect others, suddenly makes everyone else vulnerable as well. So interdependence becomes glaringly visible in such a situation also. Um, if, if you apply uh, a, a vulnerability-based analysis of our response to the pandemic, 
um, I think there are a few me key messages here that are important to bring home. Uh, as I said, risk is unequal to the pandemic itself. Uh, exposure to bad effects of our pandemic response is unequal as well. But there are two further things. Um, our responses to pandemics also show concern to be unequal. We do not have the same concern to equalize the rights for everyone. And this is one of the, uh, one of the effects of the pandemic that will take a long time to play out probably. Because uh, with the different official responses, with the different unofficial responses, these differences in concern for different populations are becoming visible as well. And so this means two things. It means if you are a population for whom less concern is shown, uh, you will see it and you will probably remember it. On the other hand, it could also encourage people for advocacy because it becomes visible for more people. So uh, in rich Swiss cities, we've suddenly had long lines of people queuing up for bags of donated food. And this is, this is an image many people would not have imagined to see and they will not forget either. And so you have both sides of the coin. You have a, a disvaluing image sent to people who are direct targets of this, but also uh, people who will be worried about it and want to make it better may not have realized the problem before. And so this is the more hopeful aspect of it. And so it's hard to know how this will play out long term. And then uh, there's the, the final aspect is that even that has to be more differentiated. There's more diversity inside that because it is not for everyone that every fragile claim evokes the same concern from others. So, for example, we've had a lot of concern that young people should be able to go out and party and have youth again. We've had much less voiced concern to say that old people in long-term care homes should have even minimal contact with their closest loved ones who are often their advocates and proxies at the same time as well. And so the same concern, the same claim for belonging and community and contacts with other people uh, does not have the same, does not have the same weight in public regard according to whose claim it is, as if community was more important in the young than in the old. And the reason why I'm making this point is that this is not because the old are not viewed as important. Indeed, because they are the prime victims of COVID-19, uh, most of the confinement measures have mostly been there to protect their lives. And so it cannot be said based on our response that we disvalue elderly people, but we disvalue some components of their lives at the expense of others. Um, and so this also should lead us to thinking in a more nuanced way. People who are adults and capable of decision making should be able to make their own priorities between the components of their lives if there's a trade-off but often we make the trade-offs for others more in some uh, in some populations than in others well thank you very much uh, for, for taking the time to to do this interview um it was very very thought-provoking and definitely adds a layer of nuance or several layers of nuance to how we use the term vulnerability in in particular um in times like the ones we're currently experiencing so thank you very much thank you so that's it for today we hope you enjoyed the episode episode transcripts are available below the episode description we also have show notes on our website where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. 
If you have any questions, comments or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe at ed.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter as at Mitra and Rev underscore Richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk forward slash. Thanks for listening and see you again for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.